Have you guys ever wondered what it would be like to be the parents of Jesus, uh, to be the parents of a sinless child? Uh, For those of you who are parents, I'm sure you think, that would be so nice not having to deal with all the tantrums, not having to deal with all the problems that uh, oftentimes our kids bring with their sinful behavior. And, you know, I I wonder sometimes if Mary and Joseph, when they had Jesus, thinking, you know, this parenting thing is pretty easy. I don't know why all these other people are saying how difficult it is. I mean, you just tell him to do what you're supposed to do, and he does it. And, you know, it just must have been a a pretty surreal thing to be a, a parent of Jesus. But, you know, that also probably made having their next children uh, that much more difficult. Imagine having the perfect uh, child, and then you have number two and three, and you know, all of a sudden you have these little sinners in your house. And uh, I wonder if Mary ever said to Joseph, you know, your children are causing problems. You know, Jesus, you know, you had no part of that. That's mine, and these are yours. I don't know if you parents have ever said that. When, yeah, I know I've been guilty of that. Jenny, your girls are acting up. <laughs> but uh, we kind of want to distance ourselves when they're not behaving well. But you know, I've also never thought, you know, have you ever wondered what it had been like to be a brother or sister uh, of Jesus? Uh, you know, on one side, that'd be really great. You know, he's always going to be loving to you. He's always going to look after you. He's never going to take things from you. He's never going to treat you bad. So, you know, there'd be a nice aspect of being a brother or sister of Jesus. But uh, there's also another side of that of, you know, what it would be like to have the literally the perfect sibling uh, who never does anything wrong. Uh, And as parents, you know, we have this tendency to kind of be like, you know, why can't you be more like, and imagine, why can't you be more like Jesus? Why can't you just always do what's right? And so there probably would have been somewhat of a difficulty, you know, being his siblings growing up. And, you know, I bring that up because, you know, last week we looked at the beginning of Luke chapter 2 with Jesus' birth. And, you know, I've always wondered, you know, what would it be like as a child parenting him? And what would it have been like as a brother? Uh, What would it have been like as his siblings? But, you know, Matthew, Mark, and John, they deal with Jesus' birth, and then they jump straight to his adult ministry. They skip everything from birth to adulthood. Uh, Only in the Gospel of Luke do we have just a tiny bit of information about Jesus as a child, about Jesus a little bit after his birth, which we're going to be looking at this morning. I wish there was a lot more. I wish we had more insights into that. God decided uh, that wasn't something that we needed, but he did give us this bit of information that we're going to be looking at here in Luke chapter 2, the second half. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, this is a very encouraging passage of Scripture. We're going to encounter two individuals, two individuals that Mary and Joseph encounter at the temple. And Matthew, Mark, and John's gospel, since they don't deal with this aspect of Jesus' life, we don't see these two people in there. So this is unique to the gospel of Luke. uh, And I think there's a lot we can learn from these two people. But um, let's see what Luke has to say. We we ended in uh, verse 20 last week, so we're going to pick up Uh, In Luke chapter 2, verse 21, this morning it says this. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to um, Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the wound shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So now that Luke has shared about the birth of Jesus, he goes and he shares about three ceremonies, three very important Jewish ceremonies, three ceremonies that were commanded by God for the nation of Israel. And he brings up these things, and we're going to look at these different ceremonies. The first ceremony that Luke mentions is the ceremony of circumcision. 
Now, if you've ever studied through the book of Genesis in chapter 17, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the one that God chose, God gave a specific sign for this covenant that he made with the nation of Israel, and that sign was the sign of circumcision. I'll read what God says to Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 9, we're told this. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And so this sign of circumcision, God gives this as, you know what, no one else is going to have this. This is going to be something that, you know, we're going to see you and all your descendants, Abraham, every male child, they're going to have this. And it's a sign of this covenant that I'm making with you. And so this is something that every male child needs to do. But notice that God gets even more specific and he says, on the eighth day that this little boy is born, that's the day you'd have to circumcise him. Now, I find that interesting because, you know, I just think, you know, why don't you just say circumcise the boys? And then you'll be, you know, you could circumcise them on the fifth day. You could circumcise them on the fifth week. Why the eighth day? Why be so specific? Why is that something that is important? Well, you know, scholars throughout the uh, centuries have kind of wondered about, you know, the significance of this eighth day. But in 1939, there was a scientific discovery made. And I think this discovery helps us to understand why would God choose the eighth day? Why would that be important? In 1939, it was discovered that the human body has two blood clotting factors. The first blood clotting factor is vitamin K, which is not fully formed into the body until the fifth to the seventh day. So on the seventh day, with every baby, the vitamin K would be fully formed right before the eighth day. Uh, The second clotting factor, which is necessary, is called uh, prothrombin. Now, the interesting thing about prothrombin is it starts to build in your system slowly in the first few days, and then all of a sudden on the eighth day, it peaks to 110%. It's the only day that it's more than 100%. Then it goes back down to 100% the ninth, tenth day. So on the eighth day, you have this thing in your body that is necessary for producing blood clot, uh, clotting your blood uh, so you don't bleed to death. And on the eighth day, it's at 110%. Now, this is very interesting because in order for the blood to crop uh, clot properly, you need 100% of vitamin K, and you also need 100% of prothrombin. But the eighth day, you not only have 100% of vitamin K, you have 110% of prothrombin, which ultimately is the eighth day of a baby's life is the best day to cut him, a best day to do surgery on him, because that will make him him clot the best. He's not going to have any bleeding. Now, if you did it the fifth day, uh, the baby could actually have some really uh, prolonged bleeding. It could be very problematic. And so very interesting because you know, it wasn't until 1939 that this was discovered, that on the eighth day is actually the best day to do this. But God knew. Uh, God knew. He created our bodies. He knew that this was the, the case. And so he tells Moses and all the descendants, do this on the eighth day, knowing that this is the best day to do any type of surgery on your child. Uh, and so they just probably said, okay, the eighth day, we'll just be obedient, not having a clue what the significance of that is today we understand that uh, and I think it's just another one of the many proofs of the Bible's inspiration of God knowing these things and then uh, giving them to us so the first ceremony that Luke tells us is that Mary and Joseph followed this command on the eighth day they had baby Jesus circumcised as they were told in the law the second ceremony that Luke mentions was a ceremony of purification The law commanded after a woman gave birth that she was unclean for a total of 40 days. 
The first seven days would be a day, days of uncleanness. And on the eighth day, she was free to take her child and go and have him circumcised to be obedient to the law. And then for 33 more days, so you have seven and 33, total of 40, she's still unclean. During that time, she could go about her household duties and, and do the different things that she needed to do. But she could not go to the temple and she could not share in any religious ceremony because she was considered unclean for that portion of time. Leviticus chapter 12 Verses 2 through 4 tells us about this. It says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as is the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. Now, once those 40 days of purification were done, uh, she had to go to the temple and she had to give the priest a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon for a sin offering. And once the priest uh, offered those on her behalf, then she would be considered clean again. Now, if you were poor and you couldn't offer a lamb because lambs were something that actually cost a lot, uh, you could offer two pigeons. Now, we're told that Mary and Joseph offered two pigeons, which helps us to see that actually they were uh, a poor family growing up. And so Mary is a part of this. She follows this purification ceremony. She has baby Jesus. Seven days, she's unclean. The eighth day, she has baby Jesus circumcised. And then 33 more days, she stays away from the temple, uh, but then does everything that she's supposed to do according to the law. The third ceremony that Luke mentions was the ceremony of consecration. The law commanded that every firstborn child was to be consecrated to the Lord. Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. It says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast. It is mine. Now, the Hebrew word here translated consecrate means to dedicate, uh, to set apart, to devote, to consecrate. You know, this is a great thing that we see in Scripture, that God wants parents to dedicate their children to Him. To recognize ultimately your children belong to God and to give them back to Him, to dedicate them to Him, to say, I am dedicated to raising these children in a godly way. Now in the Bible, we don't see a regular practice that we have in the church world today. We don't see a command or an example of baptizing infants, baptizing babies. In the Bible, we see people accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. They make that connection. They make that acceptance of Him. And then after they're able to accept that, they get baptized. Now, children who are babies, obviously at that point in time in their life, aren't able to understand the gospel, aren't able to understand what Jesus has done for them. So they can't accept Him. Uh, and that's the pattern. You accept Jesus and then you're baptized. So we see no example and we see no command to baptize children but, or babies. But we do see this dedication. Uh, this bringing your children to the Lord and saying, we dedicate our child to you. We dedicate ourselves to following your commands and raising this child in a godly way. And so here at Cross Connection, we don't baptize babies, uh, but we do dedicate them to the Lord. Uh, just like we see as Jesus here is dedicated to the Lord. Uh, and so if you have children and you would want to dedicate them, uh, we would love to do that. We'll do, you know, you can invite family and friends and come and before the service we'll uh, take time just to dedicate the baby to the Lord, to pray for you as parents uh, as you seek to dedicate yourself uh, to raising your child uh, in a godly way. 
So Luke brings up these three ceremonies that Mary and Joseph do, the ceremony of circumcision, the ceremony of purification, and the ceremony of dedication, um, and, you know, or consecration. And the, there's two important things to note of why Luke mentions this. You might be thinking, well, who cares? You know, who cares that they did all this stuff? Well, I think there's two important things to note here. First of all, Luke shares this with us to give us some insights into Mary and Joseph's relationship with God. These were commanded in the law. These were things that, you know, if you were following the Old Testament scriptures, following the Bible, then you would be doing these things. And so it reveals to us that Mary and Joseph took these things and said, you know, these are important. We want to be obedient to the Bible, obedient to God. And so the fact that they did these things shows a bit of their relationship, their obedience, not only personally, but also saying we want to be good parents. Because we are going to take our son and we're going to do these things on his behalf of having him circumcised and and dedicating him uh, to the Lord. And so uh, it shows their obedience as individuals and also obedient as parents. But I think a second reason that Luke shares this with us is because throughout this gospel, he's bringing out the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life and in that perfectly kept the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. None of us can fulfill the law. None of us can do all that God has commanded because we all fail. We all miss the mark. We all, you know, none of us are able to do that. But Jesus did. And Luke here, I think, wants to bring up, even from a baby, not just in his adult life did he complete everything, even as a baby before he able to do all this stuff, those portions of the law that he needed to have, like circumcision and being dedicated, his parents did that for him. So even at the start of it all, he was able to keep everything till he was grown and then died. And I think Luke wants to bring this up because that's something that we're going to see through this gospel of Jesus, the perfect man who kept the law. And he brings these things up, I think, to help us see even at infancy, he kept the law and was circumcised. His parents made sure of that. He was dedicated just like he was supposed to be. Uh, And so I think these are important things that will build as we continue through this gospel. Now, in order to fulfill the laws of circumcision and, and purification and consecration, you had to go to the temple. Uh, that was the place in which you would do all these things. And so Mary and Joseph, they go to the temple, and while they're at the temple, they meet two individuals. And as I mentioned earlier, these two individuals, Luke's Gospel is the only one that shares about them. I think they're amazing individuals, and there's a lot that we can glean from them and learn from them. They have a great example. So let's see uh, what we're told about these individuals. The first person that they meet in the temple, we see here in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. This is what it says. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." So Mary and Joseph, they come to the temple to do all these specific laws that they were supposed to. And as they get to the temple, they encounter this man that we're told's name is Simeon. And we're given five specific things about this man that I think are uh, interesting to note. Uh, My thing not been working? Oh, or am I backwards? There we are. Sorry. The first we're told that Simeon was just. 
Now, the Greek word here translated just means upright, righteous, virtuous, one who com- uh, keeps the commands of God. So, so Simeon was a man who kept the commands of God. This is something that was very important. Uh, second, we're told that he was devout. This Greek word translated devout means someone very dedicated, someone committed, someone devoted to God. So not only did he keep the commands of God, but he also had a great devotion to God. Third, we're told that he waited for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel was that he was waiting for the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah 315 times, all about his life and different things about him. And it promised that he was coming, and this man was waiting for this, waiting for the salvation of Israel through the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Simeon knew these prophecies, he knew these promises, and he was waiting for God to fulfill them. Fourth, we're told that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. He had this special blessing of having the Holy Spirit upon his life. And fifth, we're told that the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he should go to the temple uh, and that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So God may know, Simeon, you're not going to die before you see the Messiah. You're going to see him before your death. So here's this man who's been waiting for the Messiah for years. He's been holding on to this promise that the Messiah is going to come. The salvation of Israel and the world is going to come through Jesus. And he's been waiting for this for a long time. And something I want you to note is how he waited. Because Simeon wasn't the only one waiting for the Messiah there in Israel. I mean, the nation of Israel was desperate for this. They wanted this. There were many people waiting for the Messiah to come. But they weren't all waiting as Simeon waited. Simeon was a man who waited in obedience to God's commands. He waited uh, while being very committed and devoted to God. In the years that he had to wait for the Messiah, he didn't get idle. He didn't start living worldly. He didn't start living for the pleasures of this life. Instead, he stayed committed and devoted to God and was obedient to God. And I think this is very significant because if you look at the nation of Israel at this time, there weren't that many people waiting for the Messiah like this. Too many were getting idle and getting worldly and living for themselves. They weren't living for their God. They weren't living uh, devoted to Him. So Simeon was kind of unique in this, and I think it's a good example for us because we too are waiting for the coming Messiah. We're waiting for the Lord to come back and rapture His church to Himself. And so you know, we need to be like Simeon, who he was waiting for the initial coming of the Messiah. We're waiting for the coming of the Messiah to rapture His church to Himself. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaking in verse 42, He says this, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour the Lord is coming. But know this, That if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus says so often about His return that, hey, I'm going to come and you're not going to know when it is. And you need to be like someone who's ready. Ready for my return. He often says, watch, be aware, don't get caught off guard. You know, too often I think we live in a way where we're not ready for Jesus. If Jesus came back today, would you be living in such a way where you would be like, hey, come, I'm living for you, I'm obedient to you, I'm devoted to you, I'm happy for you to come today? Or would you think, oh no, I'd be ashamed. I'd be ashamed if He came today with the way that I'm living and what I'm pursuing because it's not for Him, it's for myself. And and so Jesus says, you know what, I could come at any moment and because of that, you should be living like I could come at any moment. You should be living like I could come today or I could come tomorrow and make sure that you're living for Me. 
You know, all of us as Christians are ultimately waiting for the Messiah to return. The question is, how are we waiting? We're all doing it, but we're all doing it differently. Kind of like in Simeon's day. Everyone was waiting for the Messiah. Some were waiting the way that God wanted them to, like Simeon, and some were waiting in a way that God didn't want them to. And I think for us as a church today, we have the same groups of people. Some of us are waiting the way that God has told us to wait for the return of the Lord, and some are not. And the challenge for us is to be like Simeon, to be those people who aren't idle and worldly and living for ourselves, but we're waiting in such a way where we say, Lord, I'm living for you. I want to make the most of this time for you. I want to bring glory to you and follow you and be obedient to you. So Simeon was waiting in this godly way for the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit led him into the temple, and there he sees the Messiah, baby Jesus. Notice what he does. He takes baby Jesus into his arms and he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory of your people Israel. You know, Simeon knew something very important about the Savior, about the Messiah, that he came to bring salvation to everyone. A lot of the Jews at this time were just thinking the Messiah is coming to save Israel, to save Jews. Simeon understood, no, 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 the Messiah is coming to save the world. Not just the Jewish people, but all people. And Simeon had this recognition. But I think he also says something significant. He says, Lord, you're now letting your servant depart or die in peace. Now that Simeon had gotten to see the Messiah, it was promised that he would. He says, you know, now I can depart in peace. I've had the time to see my Savior, and now I can die in peace. And and I think that's interesting for us today because one of the greatest fears that people have is the fear of death. The fear of death because so many in this world have no concept of what's next. A fear of the unknown, what happens after I die. But you know, as Christians, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, who have a belief in Him, we shouldn't have fear. We should be like Simeon. I can depart. I can die in peace because I have confidence and assurance of what's next. I have confidence and assurance that I'm going to be forgiven of my sins and given eternity in heaven with God uh, where there's no more tears, there's no more sadness. You know, you and I as Christians, we don't have to fear death. We can have peace in it because we have confidence of where we're going, confidence of what's taking place. But this world does not. Which is why it's so important for us as Christians to share with them what Christ has done so they can have that peace, they can have that assurance that if they die today, if they have accepted Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven and they can stand before God and be accepted into heaven. So Mary and Joseph listen to what Simeon says and let's see how they respond to that. Luke 2, starting in verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. When Mary and Joseph heard what Simeon had to say, we're told that they marveled at it. And I'm sure this must have been you know, amazing for them. I can imagine how you know, they had this combination of joy and surprise of how God has touched the hearts of others about this child. Because you know, when Mary got pregnant, no one believed that she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. They just thought she was someone who was a fornicator. Uh, obviously, you went out and you had sex before you got married, and now you're pregnant. No one believed, hey, here's a woman who's miraculously conceived. Uh, and so you know, a lot of people didn't grasp 
hey, the baby that you have is the Messiah. And so, you know, it's kind of this thing between her and Joseph. And now to have someone else come and recognize who this baby is and to share these things to them, I'm sure was a great encouragement. But Simeon goes on to share a couple more things that were important for them to know, but also maybe hard for them to hear. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Here Simeon reveals something significant about the effect that Jesus was going to have on people. Jesus was destined for the fall and the rise of many people. You see, when people encounter Jesus, they respond in one of these ways. They either fall or they rise. You know, it's interesting, Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, he kind of speaks about something similar as in the book that he wrote. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says this, Therefore it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him, being Jesus, will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, if you believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed." You know, when people encounter Jesus, they basically respond in one of two ways. They either reject him and fall because he's a stumbling block to him. They don't like what is being said. They don't want to accept him, and so they fall. Or they accept him and they rise to salvation, realize how precious Jesus is, realize what he's done for them, accept him and receive all the forgiveness and blessings that come with it. So when people encounter Jesus, they have one of two responses. They either accept him or they reject him. Now, that choice that people make to either accept or reject Jesus is the most significant and important decision they will ever make because it has eternal ramifications. You see, all of us, the Bible says very clearly in Revelations 21, are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be judged. We're going to be standing there before Him. And the reason that you're going to be judged or not judged is going to be based upon, did I in this life accept what Jesus has done on my behalf? Or did I reject what Jesus did on my behalf? If I accepted what Jesus did on my behalf, we're told that our name is written in the book of life and that we're not going to be judged for our sin because Jesus dealt with it on the cross and we accepted it and He's going to allow us to go into heaven. But for those who rejected Jesus in this life, then you didn't accept the penalty for your sin on the cross and so therefore you have to take that penalty yourself and so it says that He's going to reject you. And He's going to say, "All right, now the consequence for your sin is hell. And so as you stand before him, what you've chosen in this life, if you've chosen to reject Jesus, then ultimately as you stand before him, he will reject you. If you've chosen to accept him in this life, as you stand before him, he will accept you and allow you into heaven. And so that decision has eternal ramifications, the most important decision anyone will make. And as Christians who have already made that decision, it's so important for us to share with others. Share with others, hey, this reality is there. This decision is the most important decision. This good news of what Jesus has done is the most important message there is. And so often we get fearful and shy away from that. And it's the most unloving thing we can do because that's the most important message someone can hear and the most important thing that they need to make a decision about. So Simeon shares with Mary the effect that Jesus is going to have on people. Not everyone's going to love him. In fact, many people are going to reject him. And as we know, they're going to kill him. Simeon also shares the effect that this is going to have on Mary. He says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You know, I think it was very important for Mary at, 
the beginning of this to really start to prepare herself for what was going to happen. You know, she knows that this is the Savior, the Messiah, but you know, to know that you know what, he's going to be rejected, and the impact of that on you is going to be very, very difficult. You know, for all of us who have kids, I'm sure you've had times where you saw them get rejected. Uh, I remember a time living in Scotland. Uh, Scarlett was about two. Uh, I took her to the park, and she loved the park, and she loved playing with other kids. And, you know, she sees this group of kids playing tag, and she gets this big smile on her face, and she kind of runs on over there. And this older Scottish kid comes up to her and says, Get lost! In this Scottish accent, and she kind of doesn't know what he's saying, and she's smiling and wanting to play. Uh, and then he uses some cuss words at her and gives her a shove, and, you know, she starts to cry and is all upset. And right at that moment, I'm filled with two very strong emotions. Uh, the first one is sadness for my daughter, uh, who has had this happen to her, who had this little brat do this to her. The second one is anger. Uh, uh, you know, this child who would dare do this to my child, you know, definitely feelings of wanting to do bodily harm to this child and had to resist that. But, you know, we've experienced that. You know, that's just something small and little. You know, a little kid pushed her and swore at her. Imagine what it would have been like for Mary the mother of Jesus, to have to watch. We know that she is there at the foot of the cross with John. She is watching her son be crucified. She's watching him get rejected. She's watching him be beaten. I mean, I can't fathom having to watch my girls go through something like that. And I think probably of anyone who was alive at that time, she suffered the most in having to watch that because that was her kid. And how horrible that must have been. And so Simeon prepares her for this. This is going to be like a sword driven into your side, and sure it was, because of you having to watch what's going to happen to your baby. So God uses Simeon to share this important message with Mary and Joseph. And so Simeon's this first significant individual that they meet, but now they're going to meet another very important individual as they're there in the temple. Let's see who that is, starting in verse 36. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem." So the first significant person is Simeon, and now we come to the second significant person, and we're told that her name is Anna. Now, we're also given five details about this woman, Anna. First, we're told Anna was a prophetess. Uh, She was a woman that God used to speak specific messages to his people. Second, we're told that she was a widow. Uh, Her husband died only after seven years of marriage. So uh, at that time, they got uh, married pretty young. So sometime in her 20s, she would have been a widow. uh, And, you know, third, we're told that she was now an elderly woman, that she's 84 years old. Fourth, we're told that she did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. And fifth, we're told that the instant that Jesus came into the temple, Anna gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. You know, I think Anna is just a wonderful example to us of a godly woman who served the Lord with her life, even when she's old. She loses her husband after seven years of marriage, and, you know, 
After going through a tragedy like that, you know, a lot of people respond with rejecting God, getting bitter at God, wanting nothing to do with God. But we don't see that with her. She loses her husband just seven years into their marriage. You know, she could have stopped serving God. She could have started living for herself, which so many people do. But instead, we see that she gives herself completely to the Lord's service. Anna didn't depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. She didn't give in to the temptation of getting caught up into self-pity. She didn't turn to worldliness. Instead, she gave herself wholeheartedly to the Lord. She just wanted to serve Him night and day, fasting and praying for people. You know, I think we need a lot more Annas in the church today. People who recognize the importance of serving the Lord and people who recognize the importance and power of prayer. Here's a woman that dedicated and devoted herself to praying for others. And for those of you who are older in life right now, I hope this is an encouragement to you. Here's a woman who was 84 years old, and she was used by God. She was serving the Lord. And I think so often, you know, in the church world, we kind of think, well, once I get old, or if I'm too young, God can't use me, which isn't true. God can use young people. God can use old people. God can use anybody. Uh, And here we see an 84-year-old woman who God was using very significantly. And one of the ways that she recognized she could be used was through prayer. And I think that's just a a great ministry to have, a great thing for all of us to be uh, endeavoring in. You know, when Jenny and I were missionaries in Scotland, we would regularly send out newsletters of ways in which people could pray for us. And uh, we had several older couples that we knew. I mean, a lot of people say, hey, we'll pray for you. And, you know, I say that sometimes, and you too probably as well, and then you forget. But these older couples, they'd write it down. And uh, one of the couples invited us to their house. They had our picture on their, their refrigerator. They had a picture in their house. And I saw our newsletters of different months hanging all around the place. And they say, oh, yeah, when I'm in here, I just read over those requests, and I I pray for you. And it was just such an encouragement to know that someone took it that seriously and spent so much time lifting the requests that we sent up uh, to, in, to the Lord in prayer. And so I think that's just a great example we see here from Anna being dedicated to prayer, being dedicated to serving the Lord. And so Mary and Joseph, they, they encounter these two people. Uh, and, you know, just think of how much this was an encouragement to them because Mary and Joseph were definitely not Mr. Popular in Nazareth. Uh, people knew Mary was pregnant before she had Jesus, uh, got married to Joseph. Uh, and you know most people in that society assume the worst. Now, in our society, that thing happens a lot. There are a lot of young girls getting pregnant before they get married, and it's happening so much that you know, it's not even it's kind of just accepted. In that society, it wasn't accepted at all. Uh, if you got pregnant before you were married, you were shunned, you were definitely looked upon in a very negative light. Uh, they would have dis- had disdain for you, disgust for you. This was not a situation that would have been nice for Mary, and especially, she didn't do anything wrong. Uh, so imagine that. You know, everyone's thinking, oh, you're such a sinner. You went and you, you know, slept with someone before Joseph, or maybe it was Joseph, but you weren't married yet. And, uh, and so there was a lot of different rumors and a lot of different things, and I'm sure... Uh, there wasn't too many encouraging words about Jesus' birth because they just thought, well, here's this illegitimate child that's being born. But, you know, this is something that actually the Pharisees used against Jesus when he was in his adult ministry. Uh, Jesus is speaking about the Heavenly Father and how the Heavenly Father is his father and that the Heavenly Father is not the Pharisees' father. And their comeback to Jesus, notice what they say to him in John 8.41. They said, Jesus, we're not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. This is a dig against him. They're saying, hey, 
you're born of fornication. We all know about your upbringing. We all know that Mary was sleeping with someone before she married Joseph. I mean, that stuck with him his whole life. Even the Pharisees bring, hey, we know how you were born. You were born in fornication. Because that was the thought that everyone had. Because people weren't thinking, oh, there's this miraculous birth going on. So even the Pharisees, way into Jesus' 30s, are throwing this back at him to try to discredit him when he's saying, I have God as my Heavenly Father. You don't. And they're saying, Pfft. We know we weren't from fornication. You were. Uh, and so this is something that you know, Mary and Joseph and Jesus had to deal with. But they weren't um, popular. There weren't a lot of people who knew about this. And so you know, I think this was something that would have just been such an encouragement uh, when they encounter Simeon and Anna and they say these wonderful things about Jesus and you know, how encouraging that would have been. And, and I think it's significant where it happens as well. They go to the temple... And there they meet these people who encourage them. And I say that's significant because that's how it should be today in the church world. When we come to church, there should be those that are there to encourage us, to lift us up, to build us up. I'm so sad when people tell me, you know what, I don't ever want to go to church again because when I came to church, I wasn't encouraged. You know, people, you know, talk bad about me. They gossiped about me. They did this, they did that. And it's like the last thing that should happen in the church so often does happen. But yet this is an encouragement for us We see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. You know, throughout the week, as we get together on Sundays and we get together midweek, you know, we should have a desire to, I want to stir you up to love and good works. I want to encourage you. I want to be a blessing to you. You know, that's when we get together to be like, oh, I long to get together with other Christians because they're such a good blessing and up, you know, that they build me up as opposed to, oh, I can't handle going to another church service because I've got to be with those people who are just so horrible to me. You know, this is a sad thing, uh, a sad representation of Jesus. And so this is a good encouragement to see these two people who definitely bless Mary and Joseph to be like those people that we bless others who come when they come to gather uh, to worship the Lord. So now... Um, We're told that Jesus grew and became strong in spirit and filled in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. But, uh, you know, Luke tells us about Mary and Joseph returning after they've done all these things. They fulfill what the law had said. Uh, And so now we're going to see this only time in Scripture we have one instance of uh, Jesus' childhood. So let's see what Luke has to say uh, about that starting uh, in verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. 
So once again, we see that Joseph and Mary, they're devout. And so every year they go down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This was a feast that everyone would come to. And when Jesus, uh, he's 12 years old, they go to this feast. The feast is finished. It's time to leave. And we're told that Jesus lingers. He stays there in Jerusalem. But we're told that Mary and Joseph didn't know that Jesus lingered. They supposed that he was with them and they start journeying back to Nazareth. Now, at first glance, it could be easy to say, man, Mary and Joseph were horrible parents. I mean, who in the world leaves their child in a big city like this and doesn't make sure that they're with them? And I think we we think this because we travel very differently than they did back then. You know, today we pack everybody in our car. It's not hard to count the heads. Everybody here, good, you know, unless you're home alone. But, um, you know, it's easy to find, hey, all all the people are here. We can move on and uh, not have a problem. But in those days, almost everyone would travel in large groups. You would walk for the most part. Some would travel on animals, but it wasn't safe to go in a small group or just as a family. And so whole villages would go together or families would go together. Uh, and so this would be a large group of people. And it'd be common, you know, if you're traveling, I'm going, I'm thinking, oh, you know, Jenny has the girls. And she's thinking Matthew has the girls. Or we're both thinking, oh, cousin so-and-so has the girls. And, or they're, they're with their friends playing. So, you know, that was normal. Uh, and so it's easy to see how they traveled for a day. It gets at night. Time for dinner. Go find Jesus. Where is he? You know, they, they don't see him, so they have to go a whole day's journey back to Jerusalem. And then they search for a whole day. So now it's been three days. They traveled a day. They came back a day. They searched for a day. So three days go by, and they finally find him. And notice where they find him. It's very important. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and also asking them questions at 12 years old. And all who heard were told they were astonished at his answers and his understanding. So for three days, a 12-year-old boy, Jesus, discusses God's word. He astonishes his listeners. And Luke reveals us that he's 12 with this great understanding. But, you know, Mary and Joseph, notice what Mary says when she finally finds Jesus. Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Some of your translations might not be anxiously. That's not the best translation because the word that Mary uses is much stronger than we were anxious. The Hebrew word means to cause intense pain, to be in anguish, torment, or distress. Now, for any of you parents who have lost your child, even for a short time, this horrible feeling of anguish uh, comes upon you very quickly. When Jenny and I were in Georgia, we had a time where we were with the high school uh, in the youth group. We went out to a park, and we were playing uh, volleyball there at the park, and we brought Scarlett with us. And one of the high school girls who wasn't playing, we said, you know, would you mind watching Scarlett while we play? And she said, oh, of course. Uh, and so we play the game, and then we go and look for Scarlett, and we come to the girl that we left her with, and she's like, oh, she's playing right And she has no clue where she is. It's a crowded park. Uh, and so we start searching the park. She's nowhere to be found. Uh, And right at that point, you know, that feeling that just hits the pit of your stomach and you're starting to freak out and you're starting to think of what if someone took her or whatever. You know, it's a horrible feeling. Uh, And I can't imagine if that feeling lasted for three days uh, like it would have for Mary and Joseph. But, you know, Scarlett had gone off into the restroom uh, by herself and then she came out and we saw her. And we responded like Mary, you know, what are you doing going away by yourself? Never do that. You know, you know how we were looking everywhere for you. Uh, And so, you know, she comes to Jesus with this same kind of response of, you know, don't you realize how we have felt and what's gone on as we've been searching for you? Uh, And and Jesus, you know, his response is, is very interesting. He said, why did you seek me 
As in, like, you should have known where I would have been. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He's not speaking about Joseph. He's speaking about the heavenly father. And I think Jesus' response here gives us a great indication of the direction and priorities that he knew he had even at an early age. I must be about my father's business. I must be about my father's will. That's why I have come. That's what I'm going to be doing. Jesus understood that following the will of God was a must in his life. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And he understood this at an early age, and that's where he was. I'm here to do the will of the Father. You know, Jesus is our perfect example, and He set the example for us that the will of God should be a must in our life. Following God's will instead of our will is the example that Jesus established, that Jesus said that God desires for us, that you and I should be about our Heavenly Father's business. You know, I think one of the most important things for us who are following Jesus, who have accepted Jesus, is to discover what is God's desire, what is His will for my life, and then go do it. You know, I know Christians who tell me, oh yeah, I know, I know what God's calling is, I know what God's gifting is, but they're not doing that. So it's like, well, just to know it isn't good enough, know it and then act upon it, do something with it, follow Him. Once Mary and Joseph find Jesus, we're told, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to him. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So there's the end of chapter 2. We see the birth of Jesus. We see some things that happen right after his birth. And then this one instance as he's 12 uh, that God gives us a little snapshot there of that. But you know, we've seen some great, wonderful examples to follow in these verses. Mary and Joseph are a great example of godly parents. Mary and Joseph are a great example of devoted people to the Lord. Simeon and Anna. I mean, both of them have five things that shared about them. All five of those things, I'm sure, we would love to have said about us. They were great, devoted people who followed God, who were obedient to the Lord. Uh, And I think that's a great challenge. We see these four people, and the the common theme I think we see with all of them is here's a group of people that said, you know what, we're going to be obedient to the Lord. We're going to follow Him. And you know what, I'm sure as Christians, we say, we want that. We want to do that. But I'm sure if you're anything like me, you've discovered that's not that easy. It's easy to say I want to. It's not as easy to do it. It's a struggle. It's sometimes very, very difficult you know, to resist all the temptations, to resist your own will and to live for God's will and to be obedient to Him. And so I just want to close this morning. Uh, I just want to pray for you guys because something that we're so blessed with, the Bible tells us is that we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Helper. We have the One who enables us to be obedient, the One who enables us to do the things that God has commanded us to do. You know, God will never command you to do something that He won't give you the power to accomplish. And I think sometimes as Christians we think that. We think that God's sitting there and He's saying, oh, here's my commands. You're never going to be able to do them. It's going to be so fun to watch you fail. You know, that's not the God we serve. He's saying, I'm commanding you, but I'm also giving you the Holy Spirit to enable you to accomplish what I've commanded you. Because it's, no, it's frustrating if you tell someone to do something and they don't have the ability to accomplish it. But God says, no, here's the commands and here's the Holy Spirit who will enable you, who will help you, who will give you all you need to accomplish that. And so uh, I just want to close praying for each one of us uh, that God would just help us be those as we see here these great examples. Obviously, the most important example is Jesus. But there's so many who have chosen and lived a life of obedience to the Lord uh, and that we would want to be those people as well. And so uh, I'm going to have Colson come. We'll, we'll close in a, 
a song of worship after that, but I'm just going to pray for you guys, uh, ask the Lord to do that for us. Father, you say to obey is better than sacrifice. We recognize that obedience is something that is so important to you. And now as a father, I recognize that so much more because that's what I want for my kids. I'd rather have obedience than anything else. And, and Lord, we just want to be those children of you that obey. But so often we don't. So often there are things that get in the way and, and that temptations and our own desires that, that hinder us from obedience to you, from being devoted to you, from living for your will and not our own. Uh, and Lord, I just pray that you would help us. Each person here is at a different place, Lord, in their relationship with you and what's going on. And, and you know what's happening with our life. You know our struggles. You know the things that we're, we're obeying in and things that we're not. Uh, and God, so I just pray for each individual that you would just help them where they're at, Lord. That you would help them overcome the temptations that they struggle with, Lord. That you would help them to be obedient in the areas that they're struggling with, God. Uh, that you would just help us this week to see a real change uh, in our relationship with you. A real change in how we live our lives, Lord, a real change in the words that come out of our mouth, in the actions that come out of our lives, Lord, that your spirit would just empower us, that your spirit would give us what we need to be those uh, loving ambassadors for you. Lord, even as we see here, uh, you know, Simeon and Anna were such great, uh, wonderful examples of people who just encouraged. Uh, and we just pray, Lord, that as a fellowship of believers, that when we come together, that we would be those that encourage, that build each other up. Lord, that you said, all will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Lord, that people would come and they would see love for each other in here to such a way that they would just be, they'd be in awe. They'd recognize, you know what, in the world there's not that kind of love, not that kind of acceptance, not that kind of uh, encouragement. And that we would be those who would set that example. That we would be those that you would fill and encourage and enable to be those believers that set a great example for you, Lord. And I know we all need it. We all struggle every day. Lord, and so we look to you to be the one to help us uh, to fill, uh, fulfill what you've called us to do. Uh, and so we just thank you for these examples in your word, and we pray, Lord, that we could be examples as well to people who look to our lives when they hear that we're believers in Christ. And so uh, we just thank you, we praise you, uh, and we long to just uh, be in your presence, Lord. We do wait for your return, but I pray that you would help us to wait in such a way that we aren't ashamed when you return, but that we are uh, just excited for what you're doing in and through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.